All right, Psalm 96, everyone. I have so enjoyed this series. I hope you have as well. Um, and uh, specifically, I've enjoyed uh, seeing men of God who love God's Word um, get an opportunity to preach God's Word. Uh, and uh, I think um, I've been super encouraged um, by even just growth in uh, a lot of our guys and um, some who've never even preached before and God's really worked in the midst of that. So I hope you've been encouraged as well. So once again, I ask you to turn your, take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Psalm 96. And so this is a relatively short psalm, about 13 verses. And so if you're able, we'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word uh, tonight and uh, as we seek to hear from Him. Psalm 96 in a sermon we've entitled, Sing to the Lord All the Earth. Verse 1. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult in all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness. First Baptist Church of Greg Gables, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to him and ask him to bless the reading of his word tonight. Almighty God and Father, Lord, we come before you again in prayer as your sons and your daughters through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and ask you as our Father to give us the ability to be fully attentive to the reading, the explaining, and applying of this your holy word, because we know, Father, that that is exactly what it is. It is the very word of God. It is word, Lord, that you have inspired men of old to write down that the Spirit of God uses to bring sinners to yourself and to sanctify the saints, to take those who are not currently worshiping you but robbing you of worship and making them into worshipers of you and then strengthening them in that worship. Father, I pray that you would not only give us the ability to hear tonight, but the ability to obey. Lord, because even as born-again believers, we need your grace in Christ to give us that ongoing ability. So help us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
So as we've already said, Psalm 96 was written in the context of that Old Testament passage that we read from earlier in the service. You know, the one with all the names, right? Uh, First Chronicles 15 and 16. And if you didn't catch the story there, what happened is that King David of Israel called together all of Israel to come together to Jerusalem in order to escort the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem to worship the Lord as they went along. And it was without question one of the highest points in David's kingship, if not the highest point in David's kingship. You remember the Ark of the Covenant is that most significant uh, object in Old Covenant worship. That object that God would even cause His glory to hover above on the mercy seat between the cherubim. And remember, in, in the old days, the Ark of the Covenant mostly was all, always on the move. It was going everywhere. It was always going along with Israel wherever they went, whether it was through the desert during their 40 years of wanderings or through the promised land during the conquest with Joshua or even, as you recall, in the hands of the Philistines when the Philistines captured the Ark. So when the opportunity finally came for King David to give the call to all the people to come and give the Ark a permanent place of rest, All of Israel was exuberant in its worship of the Lord. Just picture this. You see this, right? It was the ark. It's being escorted up that holy hill, Mount Zion. And it wasn't just a box. It was a symbol of the presence of God. So it was given a vivid picture of God ascending the throne of Israel and taking his seat in the city of God, Jerusalem. Where God would rule over Israel and all of the peoples. And and now the reason why we know that's the context is because right after the ark was placed in the tent in Jerusalem, King David walked over to his choir director Asaph and Asaph's sons and he had them sing Psalm 96, 1 through 13. Because in 1 Chronicles 16, 23 through 33, right around where we stopped, you will find a virtual word-for-word copy of Psalm 96. Because Psalm 96 does not give us the name of its author, but because of what we read in 1 Chronicles 15 and 16, I think it's safe to assume that David was the author of the psalm. David was preparing for the Ark of the Covenant to be brought into God's city, and the Holy Spirit moved upon him just as he has done many times before to write this inspired piece of literature. That this majestic psalm, It's a psalm of praise that calls not only the people of God to praise God, but it also calls everybody who are not the people of God and even the entire created order to praise God. And you'll see that as the three groups that are specifically addressed in this psalm. The people of God, those who are not yet the people of God, and everything that God has made. Everything is called here to praise God. So I think that provides us with a very workable outline here at the beginning. One, a call to the church. Two, a call to the world. And three, a call to the creation. And so first, let's look at a call to the church to worship. And we'll see this in verses 1 through 6 
and, and also verse 10. But specifically, and, and let me just warn you, this is top heavy on these first three verses, okay? Uh, so if um, we're in verse 1 a while, that's on purpose. Uh, verse 10 and verse 3 verses and verse 10 are really where this is specifically a call to the church. The psalmist, David, he actually is going to call the church to do two main things, and you'll see these here. The first of these things is by far and away the greatest thing, and that is the worship of God. See, the church is called to the worship of God. The church is called to the worship of God. I want you to look at the first two verses with me here and see if you notice any common phrasing. Verse 1 of Psalm 96, sing to the Lord, a new song, sing to the Lord, all the earth, sing to the Lord, bless his name. Sing, sing, sing. It's worship. And, and you notice this, right? We've considered psalm after psalm. We have talked about how nothing in the world compares to the significance of worshiping God. Giving the one who created all things and sustains all things, who is graciously redeemed and continues to graciously redeem all of his children to give him all the praise, all the honor, all the thanks, all the glory that belongs solely and wholly unto him. Nothing compares to that. In fact, it's what you're made for. It is why you are sitting right there in those pews. It's why you're existing. It's why you're breathing. It's why you are planted there. It is why you who are trusting in Christ are trusting in Christ. It's why God has stooped to save you through the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was ultimately to make you into a worshiper of the Lord. God desires and demands to be worshiped. And listen, he is the only one who can rightfully desire and demand to be worshiped. You can't do that. I can't do that. It would be the very height of arrogance for you to say, worship me now or I want to be worshiped. Whereas it's actually the very example of righteousness for the one who is worthy of worship to say, I desire it and yes, I even demand it. It's why the psalmist says, give him the glory, do his name. He's do it. God is owed worship by every living creature. That's why we started off our theme of the year this year with a series on worship because it is central to the function of human beings. It's what we're created to do. It's why the Apostle Paul would say in Romans 11 verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. So David calls the church here to this preeminent task of worshiping God. And listen, as he does, he focuses on two aspects of worshiping God. And this isn't an exhaustive list. This is just two. You see them there. Singing to the Lord and blessing his name. Those are the two aspects that are fundamental to what David is calling us to worshiping God. So if you're following my outline already, I told you, Nate, 
We've got point one, a call to the church, sub point one, a call to worship God, and sub, sub points one and two, sing to the Lord and bless his name, all right? Just make sure your indents are there, and everybody who has ever uh, sat in Brother Justin's office with their sermons is laughing right now because he's made them probably get rid of most of their sub points. Uh, All right. Singing to the Lord and blessing his name. Let's look at the first two verses once again. Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. A threefold command to sing to God. It's almost as if David is trying to build up our emotions so that they burst forth in praise to God in song. Sing, sing, sing. That's what he's doing here. And let me just tell you, I'm grateful that we have a singing church. Have you ever been in a church that doesn't or barely sings? I've been in a couple, and let me just say, it's eerie and it's wrong. Here's what happens when God saves a sinner. Let me remind you, God, when God makes a sinner in a new creation, Lord Jesus Christ, granting that sinner every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, the forgiveness of sin, the imputation of Christ's righteousness, the seal, the Holy Spirit, the communion of the saints, a promised home in heaven, he compels that sinner. That sinner cannot but at least to some decimal level sing to the Lord. So so when a church doesn't sing... I know something is seriously wrong with the hearts of the people in the congregation. Singing to God, listen, does not get you into heaven, but those who are going to heaven sing to God. If you aren't singing to the Lord, if you are marked by silence as the hymns are played rather than sound, know that there may be a serious problem in your heart. This is an imperative to sing. And I want you to know something about this singing. This singing is directed to God. And the reason I point this out is because today, a number of churches, at the very least, it seems to be directed to the people. It's not, I think, intentionally done by many churches. Maybe some. But you'll notice this. They'll put a band up front and make it look like, at least, that you are the audience. Almost always, as an unintended consequence, that makes the people in the congregation feel as though they are being performed for. That is why in many of those kinds of churches, a number of the people aren't singing. It's because they're put into a position of being performed for, or so it seems. They feel like as if they're at a concert and they're the ones who are being treated. But the fact of the matter is, God is the audience when it comes to worship. Not you. Singing to God. That's where your direction is. And and let me just say, I love how Brother Justin has just emphasized this. That we are about congregational singing. That we know when they're up here singing that we are accompanying them in worship and we are not an audience, but God is the audience. So I thank my pastor for that and I thank our congregation as well and our worship team. It's tremendous. Think about this though. Doesn't singing to God, doesn't it require great mental energy? I don't know about you, but when I'm singing a hymn or a song to the Lord, maybe you did it even tonight or this morning, you are singing, but the temptation is that your mind is somewhere else. Can I tell you something? Listen, when your mind is somewhere else, you are not worshiping the Lord. You realize this, right? Worship is hard. 
yet God gives you the grace to do it. He gives you the motivation to do it. He gives you the commandment to do it, not just once, not just twice, but three times, even in the psalm, sing to the Lord. Let me just encourage you, not just to sing, but sing to the Lord. I also want you to know that we are to sing to the Lord a new song. That's one of the distinguishing features of the psalm. Sing to the Lord a new song, a fresh song, which would be another way to translate that word new. It is fresh. The thought here is this. Just as the mercies of God, as the scriptures say, are new every morning, so must your praises be to him in song. Because get this, every morning you wake up, God is again considering you as one of his justified and adopted children. Every morning. If you're justified in Christ, you never become unjustified. You never lose your adoption. Every morning, he is committed to conforming you more and more into the image of his son, Jesus. Every morning. To holding you firmly in his mighty hand. To preserving you for glory and for making sure that everything that comes into your life by his sovereign decree works out for your eternal good and his glory every morning. That's why he says, by the way, don't just sing to the Lord, but sing to the Lord a new song because his mercies are new and fresh every morning. So that's the first feature that the psalmist points us to in respect to the worship of God. The second feature is the blessing of God. Bless his name. I hope you know what that means, but in case you've missed the last couple of weeks, what does it mean to bless God? Well, the word bless here literally means, as we've seen, to kneel. It means in the Hebrew to get on your knees. It's an action verb. You kneel. Now, you can physically kneel, but at the very least, you can kneel in your heart in submission to the Lord. In humility before God, recognizing that he is God and you are not. You bless the Lord. So, so what the psalmist is commanding us to do here in worship is to get low before the Lord, humble ourselves before God, to submit ourselves to God in light of his divinity, his spiritual nature, his infinitude and eternality, his unchangeableness, his holiness, his justice, his wisdom, power, goodness, truth, grace, and love. He says in light of everything that God is and his nature and his character, his person, his attributes, in light of all of that, you get low and you adore him in worship. One commentator, uh, Alec Moiter, who recently passed away, I think three years ago or so, uh, a tremendous commentator said this. He said, the simplest way to understand our blessing of the Lord is to remind ourselves that when we ask him to bless someone, it is shorthand for take note of his needs and meet them. So when we bless the Lord, it is shorthand for take note of the Lord's glories and excellencies and respond to them them in wonder and adoration. God says to worship by singing to me and by blessing my name. And that's the first main thing that the psalmist tells us and tells the church to do here is to worship God. Now we go to point one, sub point two, if you're not confused yet. And that's the second thing he says, and that is witness for God. You are a call to the church, is a call to the church to witness for God. Look at the second part of verse here. It says, proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. 
That word proclaim there, I found something very interesting this week in studying that particular word proclaim. This word was translated by ancient Jewish scholars in the second and third centuries BC in the Greek translation of the Old Testament as the Greek word euagalitza. Translated, evangelize. These ancient scholars saw in Psalm 96 2 a command to evangelize. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of them the good news, David is saying in the Old Testament. Declare the gospel, David is saying. Declare the fact that there is a way for sinners to be made right with God. That there is a hope for sinners, people who are born in Adam and thus guilty, thus corrupted with Adam's nature. There is a way of escape. There is a way to be saved from God's wrath by God's grace. And that way is through Christ. The the psalmist here, he doesn't just say, proclaim this message or he doesn't say will you proclaim this message rather he doesn't say please oh please would you spread the gospel he says proclaim good tidings of his salvation command proclaim it speaking to the church and listen he's not speaking to the clergy he's speaking to laity to you to the member of the church so, so as a natural application question, we can all ask ourselves is, do you proclaim? Do you tell of him? Do you proclaim the gospel at all? Look what verse 3 says. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. He emphasizes this again in verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, you and I are commanded as the church of God to tell the lost and dying world that God reigns. That God is on the throne, that he is the king of kings and lord of lords, that he is the creator and sustainer and governor of all things, that all things happen in order with God's sovereign decree, and that this God has sent his only son into the world to make sinners holy and righteous in his sight for time and eternity. He commissions the church, he charges the church to take that message into the world. Can I just ask you, will you resolve to do that? Do you know how the world will be changed if you resolved to proclaim the gospel? Let me encourage you to proclaim of his good tidings in salvation. To tell the gospel to lost family members, lost friends, lost co-workers. Tell it every day. What does he say? He says, proclaim good tidings of his salvation when? From day to day. In other words, every day. What a resolution, by the way. What a goal. That this week, by your grace, I'm going to resolve to spread the gospel to at least one lost person a day. To love one lost person enough to tell them of your salvation, God, every day. Will you make that goal? See what happens, because I'll tell you what happens. Once you start sharing the gospel with people, you don't want to stop. Let me tell you why. Because it works. Because he works. Now, I'm not saying that every time you share the gospel, somebody automatically gets saved then and there. But what does God say about his word? It will not return in vain. So it's working one way or the other, friends. 
You share the gospel and it'll become contagious and you proclaim it every day. I encourage you to do that. Again, this isn't optional. This is a command. This is in the imperative mood. Proclaim, evangelize. Now, let's think about this. Why should we worship the Lord and why should we witness for him? We're not going to spend much time at all looking at this because because of time purposes. But verses 4 and 6 is is a reason David gives here. And you see that word for in the beginning of verse 4? For, it's an explanation. Here is why you sing to God, you bless his name, and why you spread his glory. Look at verses 4 to 6. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples, whether it be money, material things, things of this earth, are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. The reason David gives here, in short, is because nothing compares to God. Nothing compares to the Lord. So worship in song. Worship him by blessing his name. Worship him by witnessing for him, by spreading the gospel every day because nothing compares to the majesty of God. Nothing's comparable to that. So that's the first call, a call to the church. It's the longest call. <laughs> the second call is the call to the world. Verses 7 through 9 are actually very similar, if not identical. Let me tell you that. Verses 7 9, what we have is a call to the world, and you know that because it, it uses the term peoples and, and nations, and, and we know at this point in time that usually referred to not nation of Israel or those other nations. And so this is a call to the world, and look what it says in verses 7 to 9 here. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. A call to the world to worship. It's similar. And you know why it's similar? Because whether you're in Christ or not, even the world is under obligation to worship the glory of God to his name. Those who are not worshiping the Lord are actually robbing the Lord of what he's due. Think about this. On every continent... In every country, in every city, on every street, there are robbers of the highest degree. Which is why the psalmist says, proclaim to them of salvation. Because they're robbing God. Evangelism exists, John Piper writes, because worship does not. The chief end is to worship God. Evangelism is just the means to an end. You know that, right? So that the robber that you are evangelizing becomes a worshiper. The psalmist is going to add a couple features here in this segment concerning worship. He adds two features to be exact. The first is he says, bring an offering. This word offering in the Hebrew is is an offering of thanks. You are bringing a thankful heart when you come to the worship of the Lord. You are bringing tithes and offerings, thanksgivings to God. He owns everything already. These are offerings not only of, of tithes and offerings, but offerings of service. I'm here to serve however you would have me to serve. So he says, bring an offering, which is an interesting feature here. But he also says, come into his courts. 
The courts, the court is the, is the idea of the dwelling place. It's the idea where the Lord dwells. God dwells here in the courts of his people. And here's what I want you to note more than anything about this section. So he says, two, two distinct features, bring an offering, come into his courts, but he's going to tell us what happens to a worshiper who's in the right frame of mind when he does come to the courts. What happens to a worshiper when he does come to the courts of the Lord, when he enters into the dwelling place of God? What happens to him? Well, he's going to tell us in verse 9. It says, worship the Lord in holy attire. By the way, that's not clothing. That's the attire of righteousness that Paul is talking about, which only comes by coming to Christ. That's the holiness of God there. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Verse 9, tremble before him all the earth. So let's, let's ask the question again. What is going to happen when a worshiper the right frame of mind comes into the presence of God into his courts he trembles he trembles that's an amazing amazing text let me ask you do you tremble this word by the way it literally means to writhe in fear the more righteous a person is the more he trembles when he enters into the immediate presence of God I'll give you an example there was nothing cavalier or casual about the response of Habakkuk when he entered into the presence of God. I love this story, by the way. You remember what happens in that prophetic book, Habakkuk? You remember he's complaining to God about the people, about all their sin and degradation and their injustices. They're just sweeping across the land. They're doing evil. He's so offended by this. He's so offended by the sin of his countrymen that he went up to his watchtower and he complained against God saying, God, you're so holy. You can't even look upon sin with favor. How can you stand idly by and let all of these things come to pass? So Habakkuk said, I'm going to sit up here and I'm going to wait until God answers my question. Well, God came and he answered his question. And then towards the end of the prophecy, Habakkuk describes what that experience was like. He writes this, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay entered my bones and in my place, I tremble." Let me tell you what I get from this point and what I think you should understand from this idea of tremble is this. Worship is not a time for being passive. It's never, ever a time for being casual. You're sipping on your coffee, talking to your friends, something, sometimes you enter in. Are you serious? Do you see how off the mark most churches are with respect to this as their worship service? It is like they have a gross misunderstanding that when you come to the New Testament, Christ comes and there's no more trembling. Jesus is my homeboy. We're all buddies. Listen to me. When you come to Christ, God does become your father and he becomes your closest friend. But he remains to be God and you remain to be his creature. It's why the New Testament author in the book of Hebrews says this, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service, worship. How? With reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. Tremble. It's a call to the church, a call to the world, and then thirdly and quickly, a call to creation. 
All of creation now was spoken to by David. Look again at verses 11 through 12 here. Call to creation. Here's what David says. He says, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing, sing for joy. That word then, by the way, is key. Because it actually harkens back, as commentators say, to the word rain in verse 10. Where you and I are given the command to proclaim to the world the Lord reigns. That word reigns is written in Hebrew in such a way that it refers not only to the current reign of God, but to the coming reign of God. Which we know as a bigger, better reign. As a perfect reign. That God is actively reigning perfectly. And, and nobody, not everybody, sees it yet. So that's why we still have rebels. But we know that on the day of the Lord, referring not only to the coming Messiah here, but to the coming back and the return of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that every rebel will be humbled and will confess him as Lord. And then it will be the people of God and the creation of God glorifying God together. We will be worshiping the Lord as we will never have worshiped him before. And so David concludes all of this in verse 13 by making a statement that implies the question, will you be there in that worship? Will you or will you not be part of that worshiping body? Verse 13 says this, before the Lord, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. He returns this idea of judgment, which is a call to repent now, to place your faith in the one whom he sent, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question for us all tonight is, will you be part of this worshiping body? Are you? Are you by faith united to Christ? Have you acknowledged yourself for who you really are, a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his wrath and condemnation for all of eternity, trusting exclusively in Christ? If so, then you're a worshiper now. And so, sing to him. Bless his name. Witness for him. If you are not trusting in Christ exclusively now, well, then, of course, the day is the day of salvation. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. I pray that I'd see every one of you there in that wonderful congregation who joins in with creation, proclaiming the worship of our Lord. Let's stand and pray together. Oh God in heaven, you are a great God and you are greatly to be praised. Father, you are infinitely above all other gods for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. Father, may you equip us by your grace that we may glorify you in Christ with every fiber of our being, heart, soul, mind, strength. May we sing to you, bless your name, and tell of your salvation from day to day. 
Give us the strength we need in Christ to follow you as you call us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <coughs>